This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, everyone. I'm so happy to welcome you to our Abolition Can't Wait teach-in. Sorry for any delay. I know we're five minutes after we meant to start. For housekeeping, this event is sponsored by Eight Abolition and Haymarket Books. Thank you so much to our interpreters and captioners, Topher, Carly, Tristan, and Nisha. If you have any issues or concerns, there are people in the chat who can handle if you just message them. So I am Mon. I'm one of the authors of Eight Abolition and a PIC abolitionist organizer based in New York City working on jail moratorium campaigns. All my comrades from Eight to Abolition, along with Rachel Herzing, co-founder of Critical Resistance and current executive director of the Center for Popular Education, are on this call right now. Thank you again so much to Haymarket for having us and for making the space for all of these incredible earth-shattering and transformative conversations. The Eight to Abolition team is so grateful for the way people have connected with the platform and we're excited to see what develops from it in the future. So I'm going to start by giving you all a little bit of framing about the project before we jump into our full conversation. The way Eight to Abolition came together is that I, after seeing a lot of messages and articles about reformist campaign Eight Can't Wait, felt that abolitionists I knew could and had come up with better policies that could take us um, towards concrete steps to abolition. I posted on Twitter, as one does, And many people wrote back and I recruited people whose work and voice I trusted to be part of the project. We felt that it was an urgent conversation, uh, an urgent intervention into reformist narratives that told us our aim shouldn't be to get rid of police and make better systems, but to compromise with our own potential death. My incredible comrades worked over 24 hours to make it and then we made a website and Aid to Abolition came to life. Since then, we've incorporated some feedback, especially around disability justice and police liability. The points in a tabulation are defund police, demilitarize communities, remove police from schools, free people from jails and prisons, repeal laws that criminalize survival, invest in community self-governance, provide safe housing for everyone, and invest in care, not cops. Many of the people, if not all, who worked on Aid to Abolition are organizers on the ground currently in their areas. We come from Portland, New York City, Atlanta, DC, St. Louis, and more, uh, like many of you. What that means is that we are all in some way or another engaged in active campaigns or work to end the prison industrial complex in the US and elsewhere. By prison industrial complex, we mean any and all things that reproduce the harm associated with systems designed to cage, prosecute, and arrest. On the work ground can look like supporting people who are currently incarcerated by advocating for them and sending them commissary and things for their care, also advocating for their release. It can also look like strategies and policies to end the use of police in prisons until we've eroded the conditions that enable them to exist, as Miriam Kaba says. And it also looks like working hard to achieve any one of the points that we've put forward in the Aid to Abolition platform. 
as something grounded in anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist, pro-cooperation and pro-solidarity politics. It provides us, abolition provides us with strategies to address harm and violence in all areas of life from our personal relationships to our institutional and systemic ones. Abolition isn't just a strategy around anti-prison organizing, it's ambitious in vision and intimate in practice. It reminds us that survivors of violence and harm are not helped by jails and police, but rather undermined by them. The work of abolition has largely been shaped by the work of black women, including Rachel Herzing, who in finding critical resistance really provided some of the first and most long lasting tools for us to challenge the violence of the prison industrial complex. So on that note, I'm actually gonna pass over to Rachel uh, to ground us in the history of this work as well as our current political moment. Thank you, Ma. I appreciate the introduction. Thank you all to the to showing up today and to everybody who helped craft um, Eight to Abolition. It's a really energizing, important document, and um, I'm really glad to be in conversation with you all today. Um, you know, I am particularly excited about it because I feel like it's kind of the next generation of the movement for the abolition of the prison industrial complex that we're seeing put together this important um, and dynamic tool. And I, I mean that in the best sense, in the sense that the movement continues to evolve, the movement continues to grow, um, and we continue to push ourselves to figure out kind of how can we articulate and act on the vision that we have for healthy, well lives that we want to live. So in terms of leading up to this moment, I, I am really, really um, trying to think of the right way to say this, committed to the idea that protest kind of leads us off from where organizing has started us, right? So what leads us to this point are decades and decades of organizing against imprisonment and policing. And we can go as far back, I think, as to the Quaker objections to the penitentiary, and the Quakers have been fighting prisons ever, ever since. We can go back that far, essentially, as long as there have been prisons on this land, there have been people objecting to the use of them, right? I think we need to acknowledge the movement for prison and jail moratoriums in the 60s and 70s and moving forward from there and the prisoners' rights movements of that same period, because both of those really helped dislodge a logic of imprisonment. And I think we need to acknowledge the long, long history um, in this country and elsewhere of organizing, especially by Black people, against the violence of policing. And we need to draw attention um, through that work to how people address not only the kind of physical violence and death at the hands of cops, but also the daily grinding physical and psychological harassment, surveillance and pressure exerted by cops that makes up the majority of policing. Um, alongside that kind of ongoing organizing, so that organizing starts and continues on and evolves, as I was just saying, over time. And alongside that, you know, we've also seen the impact of periods of protest and uprising. So, for instance, the Attica uprising or the urban rebellions that swept the country, I'm thinking particularly in the period of 67 to 68, but also preceding those and following those years. I think we need to acknowledge in more recent history, Occupy and Black Lives Matter for their important cultural influences and for their success in activating a logic of large scale sustained protest as a tool for escalation. 
Um, I think we also need to acknowledge in recent history the freedom fighters, particularly from New York, Ferguson, and Baltimore, who took up that logic of protest and made the whole world take notice. Right. So um, what the legacies will be from this point, I think, are really up to us. How will we use this period that we're in to win more of what we want and need? How will we move prison industrial complex abolition from theory into a more rigorous practice and then back into re-theorizing it? How can we demonstrate the practicality and the pragmatism of fighting for the elimination of cops in cages by using the work that people are doing all across the world, all day, every day. And I just want to make a special note that, as Mon mentioned, I work with an organization called the Center for Political Education. And these kinds of movement tools are incredibly important to us. And we find them to be at the heart of what helps our movements be stronger and more effective. So again, hats off to everybody who worked on this document. Thank you for having me today. I feel like that was um, the most perfect and profound opening to the conversation we want to have in terms of what the legacy of our of our moment is going to be. Um, so I'm going to pass to Sarah for the next part of this conversation where we want to focus on invitations um, into organizing and organizing for abolition. So what it means to to find your political home and organize where you're at. Um, Sarah, go for it. All right. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Um, so I kind of want to spend some time sharing my story and how I became involved in this work. I didn't begin as a police abolitionist. I actually began um, to work in this space of technology and criticism. I began as a researcher and I was working on this object, predictive policing, which is a racially fraught technology and it's captured a lot of media attention. And like a lot of people who are working in the space of civic tech, either as engineers or critics slash ethicists, um, I began to try and break this technology down with my words. And I started to do this um, by doing something that actually in a previous webinar, Ruthie Gilmore recently criticized is this naive tactic of trying to speak a thing into illegitimacy. Um, but there are a few like limitations I started bumping again, up against, and they were this, um, they had a lot to do with the topics that were available to me, the critical tools that were available to me. Um, and the more I researched and I thought and investigated this object, though, the more I became committed to breaking predictive policing as an object. I became a police tech abolitionist. But there was a moment when somebody who was extremely intellectually influential in my life, Dr. Colin Copeman, asked me a question. And he said, Sarah, can you imagine a predictive policing technology that is not racist. And I think that was the moment I became a police abolitionist. So I became one before I even knew I was one, essentially, because this whole project of trying to reimagine predictive policing that isn't racist meant that I had to disentangle technology, race, and policing and recreate this whole carceral infrastructure that's quite vast and start to realize that this overemphasis on questions like bias or technological reformism, it's not a failure of imagination on the part of tech critics. It's actually a political arrangement. It's quite intentional. And it has to do with the relationship that policing as an institution has built with academia and with big tech and industry so that their questions start to get cut up and presented in such a way that people's desire for inquiry and will gets invested into carceral work. So I began embedding myself in organizing spaces and um, 
working towards disentangling cities from producing these technologies, from investing these technologies. And the other benefit I started to realize is that abolishing carceral tech means much more than abolishing computational policing. Um, it's a, the preconditions of these technology too. So working in movement spaces actually gives you a vast amount of knowledge of people who've been dealing with repeated encroachment of police programming in our communities. and the way in which you've been able to build up tactics to fight defense against these technologies and build up defense against these technologies, analog policing too, right? So um, in this whole long five-year project, I was just trying to criticize a single artifact. I started to recognize this vast web, this carceral state that we're up against. And that's kind of my entryway into this work. All right, passing it off to the next person. Cool. I think that's me. Um, thanks, Sarah. My name is Micah. Um, so I also wanted to talk about how sort of I came to abolition um, and what, um, yeah, what that's looked like. So I came to abolition as a student organizer and as a student. Um, I entered college having read the new Jim Crow and I knew that there was a problem um, and I was very angry at the existence of private prisons. Um, and so I joined a group called Students for Prison Education and Reform, um, whose name has since switched to incorporate abolition, which is really exciting. Um, but yeah, I got into this work, I think as many do, looking to fix things, to fix what I thought was a broken system. Um, but it was really being in community with other organizers that began to change that. Um, and so I think of a time during a private prison divestment campaign um, when I was going on about, you know, we got to get rid of these private prisons. And someone a couple of years ahead of me said, yes, and also we need to get rid of all prisons. Um, and so that was a moment for me that really prompted a lot of reflection around this idea of why do I think that it's not okay that someone is in a cage if we can see an explicit profit motive, but if that motive is harder to see, then it's fine. Um, so it was moments like that working with people. And then it was also um, reading. And so reading the work of people like Naomi Murakawa and Elizabeth Hinton, um, whose work shows that reform is not only not enough, but it's actually historically been a part of the problem. It's been a key propeller of mass criminalization. Um, it has provided legitimacy and more tools and political coverage to criminalizing institutions. Um, it was also learning from those such as Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Angela Davis, and of course, Rachel Herzing, um, much of whose work shows that abolition is actually primarily a building project. It's about building the things that we need and the relationships that we need to thrive and to be whole um, and to reduce and then better respond to harm when it occurs. Um, and then just as importantly, it was learning um, that though there's often an urge to say, how are we gonna be safe without police or prisons? We actually have to understand, as Mariam Kaba says, that police and prisons don't actually keep the vast majority of us safe. Um, and so in terms of organizing, um, I wanna speak specifically to student organizing, um, and hopefully there are some students on the call, um, but I first just wanna affirm the importance of student organizing. Um, it is real work and it really matters. Um, and so I would encourage those who are on the call to think, not only about how you can be involved on on-campus campaigns to try to disentangle your university from the prison industrial complex and you know campaigns to ban the box, um, but then also think as students, what's the community that surrounds your schools? Where are the local jails nearby? Um, how is your university collaborating with the police? 
its own police force? How does your university handle sexual violence and how could that look differently? Um, I think that students can really provide crucial support um, by mobilizing other students to do research, by hosting events and conferences, um, and especially by redirecting funds from your institution to community organizers. Um, and I hope that people will use Aid to Abolition um, to, to build on that. And so think about what contracts does your university have um, with corporations or cities that expand surveillance? I think we have to recognize that universities have provided a lot of like the backbone legitimacy for things like risk assessment and other uh, carceral technologies that Sarah was talking about. Um, and so um, on campus is, is really important. And I hope that Aid to Abolition can be a tool for that. And then just the last quick thing I want to say um, is that I graduated just last year. And something that I really learned in the past couple months is even though I'm lucky to work at a place that pays of organizing work, I've also seen the importance of finding a political home outside of that space. I'm working on right now, and I hope that when others graduate, um, they'll do the same. Thanks. Thank you so much, Michael, for that. Um, as you might notice, there's like a concert going on in the background of <laughs> my video. Um, I live in Brooklyn now, so that's been happening a lot. Um, I am Raina Sultan, and my pronouns are she, her. I am a freelance journalist and um, now a baby organizer. And I kind of wanted to jump off of what Sarah and Micah were saying in that a lot of us didn't come to abolition already abolitionists. It took learning and growing and having a greater understanding of all of the things at play when we're looking at the prison industrial complex. Um, like a lot of people, I also started out as a reformer. Um, I learned about the fact that there were private prisons that a lot of people who were in prisons or jails were there on minor drug offenses and i kind of thought that was it um and then i had some experiences both like lived experiences as well as educational experiences that brought me closer and closer to abolition and once i started identifying myself as an abolitionist um i was kind of at a loss for how to do anything about that apart from just saying like hey i don't like prisons um, and I think that a lot of people are feeling that right now. Um, I mean, I'm saying that from Twitter because I think everything that happens on Twitter is what's going on in the world. Um, but I do see a lot of people saying, how do I plug in? How do I do this with an org? And I feel that too. Before Eight Abolition, that was like all I was wondering. Um, but I think it's really important to understand that we each have skills to bring to a movement. And before you find your political home, like Micah was saying, you can still use those skills to further the cause. And so like as a journalist, I write about abolition. Even when I wasn't organizing, I was trying to use my voice essentially to create propaganda for the left. I know that people like cringe at the word propaganda, but liberals and the GOP and a lot of other people use propaganda really well. And leftists in the US, I don't think are using it to our advantage. So if you're a writer, I think you should use your voice in that way. And I write a lot about radicalizing your family or radicalizing your friends. Um, and I think that if you're not yet plugged into an organization or you feel like you don't have a large enough Twitter following, you do still have spheres of influence. If you radicalize your parents, your brother, your other siblings, your cousins, and they go on and radicalize their friends, that is already so many more people who believe in PIC abolition than did when you started. So I think that's basically what I want to say. Just believe in yourself and know that you do have skills that you can 
put into this movement, regardless of where you are, who you are, or how you think you can plug in. Thanks, Reina. Um, it's exciting to me to hear everybody living in the here, which is a world that does not exist to me. Um, <laughs> and I, I can see there's a lot of activity there and I get everything three years late by not participating that way. But um, I'm, I'm glad to see there's so much activity there on these topics. So for me, um, I talk about coming into a politics around abolition um, kind of as an extension of what becomes a common sense over time. So I come to it, I think, through having um, really, really good teachers uh, in the schools that I go to. I'm thinking particularly about college and I will not recommend my college, but I ran into some excellent people there who set me on a good path um, and also having really good movement teachers. And I feel like I um, developed more abolitionist politics by doing than I did by. So um, I want to especially up um, Rose Braz as a teacher of mine, really, really important in this movement. Um, and I want to raise her up because I feel like I learned how to do abolition um, from working with her. And I feel like that shaped my politics. Eventually, I went on to, you know, then read Angela Davis and all the other things. Um, but I think doing um, really, really shaped my my politics more than anything else. And um, I feel like it also has me in an orientation toward abolition that is about, you know, it being a totally relevant and practical and pragmatic thing and not a purely theoretical thing. And I, I feel like that is one of the criticisms that gets raised about it sometimes is that people who advocate for prison industrial complex abolition are merely theorists or ideologues or whatever. And I, I feel like I can't say enough how the practical organizing application is how you learn how to do that well. Um, and in terms of, um, I was asked to talk a little bit also in my couple minutes here about the value of movements like these, or moments like these rather. Um, and I just, I can't say enough about the period that we're in. It does feel really historic to me. Um, you know, the late great Grace Lee Boggs used to ask, what time is it on the clock of the world? And I think the time is right for us to be making really bold demands. We're in an economic crisis. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Millions and millions of people are out of work and struggling to meet their basic needs. The demand on food banks is overwhelming. The period that we're in, it's easy to ask do cops really need to be half of a city's budget or more than half if you live in a city like Los Angeles when we can't even feed our own people? I feel like we're in a period when these questions are really, really up for, for people and we can use them as opportunities. I think we're also in presents um, an important advantage that reminds us how powerful our movements can be, right? So if we think, just six years ago to 2014, 
What we got kind of as the baseline demand was a rash of things like body cameras, for instance, and training are still up, which is why, you know, a document like this gets created to begin with. But I think while there are still people pushing some of that same old stuff, the defund the police demand was such an upfront demand during this wave of protests. That's a substantial advance politically, I think, and it cuts more deeply at the heart of law enforcement's resources, but also its legitimacy. Um, I think we're also seeing people being more open and curious about the idea of abolishing the police altogether, or policing altogether. And I think, it, like I've been saying, I think that's a, a really crucial opportunity that we need to seize. And the other thing I'll just mention here before um, shutting up is that we're winning. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here, but I do think um, I'm going to pause for one second here to let the interpretation catch up. So I do think that um, we're seeing the impacts of years and years and years of organizing, but also the pressure that's put on from the recent wave of rebellions in places like Minneapolis and Dallas and Portland and other cities. Where, and we're seeing a good wave, a wave of good results in getting cops out of schools, too. I want to for sure name the Black Organizing Project here in Oakland, which just had a big win yesterday in getting the Oakland Police Department out of Oakland schools. Um, it's an important moment, I think, to be rigorous in our politics without being rigid. And we can see that these advances are opportunities to open up even more abolitionist steps, even as they don't necessarily represent our maximum demands. So I feel like we need to note where we're gaining traction and where we can push even harder. And I'll stop there. Thank you so much, Rachel, for that reflection and lifting up the impacts of years of organizing and really thinking about like how we can be rigorous in our politics while also flexible and nimble. And so I'm also Rachel. I'm Rachel Quo. I use she, hers pronouns. I'm really grateful to be in this space where people are really sharing their stories and experiences and entry points into being invited into abolition. Um, I think what I'm really reflecting on hearing you all speak is that there's so many, there's multiple entry points into abolition, right? And so in kind of thinking about the, the both the impact and like the reflection of how this work happens over years and over time. For me, I started really learning about community accountability and transformative justice in my early 20s after an experience with sexual violence. And I remember at the time, the people within that social group responded by pretending nothing happened and feeling really angry, betrayed, and upset. And at the same time, being really unsure of what to ask for from the people in my life, like what does repair for harm look like? And at the time, right, like those relationships and friendships really disintegrated. And so as someone who's been in academic spaces for a long time at the intersection of media, technology and politics, for me, like, Rachel, the work that you do around political education is so important because that work is really what has brought me into it abolition, right? And so I spent a lot of time like learning from places like insight and critical resistance and using those spaces as political education resources to get me plugged into the work. And what really struck me was like through more learning was the clarity of like how we can build better relationships around trust and interdependent responsibility and how we, we can become like better equipped to navigate conflict and harm as they eventually will happen in the place, places that we hold really dear. And so 
like really thinking about political education, the ways that I found my political homes has been through media-based organizing, right? Like such as making zines and flyers and using my design skills. So what Reina said was about using skills for the movement. And I feel like through doing this work, that's how I continue to learn and grow from people around me. So also lucky I'm thinking about the movement teachers that you mentioned, the mentors and the friendships, and that through the doing and being in spaces for a long time, learning how to build healthier relationships that have really also shaped my politics too. And so this kind of notion of political home building has been something that's been a slow burn and a long haul, right? Like it's been like over like the last decade um, that a lot of this has really come to fruition. And so being in this space, right, I kind connected to AIDS Abolition through MON from a couple of years ago when we were both organizing and doing design work against borough-based jails expansion in New York um, and getting plugged into abolition like through this demand around freeing people from prisons and jails, particularly through the permanent closing of jails, such as closing Rikers without building new jails, right? And seeing how in this moment, as people were organizing really urgently around something that was happening locally in New York City, that there was also this longer term vision of abolition that was always in place through how people were building and like making these demands, right? And prior to coming to that work, I was also doing work around sanctuary and making educational materials in those ways. And I think constantly in this process of learning from people and supporting other people in that learning journey is a constant interrogation of the systems and how they're interrelated. And so a lot of my political home has also been a commitment to building up radical leftist Asian American politics and connecting how abolition and Black liberation matters deeply to our communities. And so, for example, like thinking about how Asian American Feminist Collective works closely with Red Canary Song to organize Asian migrant sex workers um, in the larger movement to decriminalize sex work or CAV organizing Asian communities doing work on cancel rent like on how we can have safe, accessible housing for everyone, right? Like through challenging capitalism and fighting against real estate development. So there's just so many ways that we're practicing and moving towards abolition now in this moment and the ways that abolition now has material impacts. And I love, again, Rachel, like how you brought up Grace Lee Boggs on thinking about time in this moment and thinking about how the moment is now and the moment is also about engaging in a longer process and what we can do now to make abolition possible, including how we change our relationships through one another. Other. And so really thinking about how it's about how we dream and build with other people and refashion our relationships to get to where we want to go together. So I'll stop there. Thank you um, so much. I feel like I, I mean, I especially resonate with like entry points to ab abolition and organizing, especially what Micah said around student organizing. That's how I uh, actually entered um abolitionist space so so that that was kind of exciting and to hear and resonate with um and, and especially about like having rigor in our movements i think if we learned anything and somebody said this in the chat but if we learned anything from the oakland school fight you know that took 10 years people have been working for so long that really does require so much discipline and rigor you're like in it and then you're in it um so I want to kind of move us to the conversation around, uh, you know, we talked about like how we invite people to, into abolition to organize where they're at. And then it's kind of like how how to develop the rigor. Like once you've made it in, you've read a to abolition and then you're like, OK, I really want to be part of a campaign. I want to be part of on the ground work. Um, so next section, I feel like we're going to kind of get into that is what does on the ground look like? How do you stay with it? How do you have rigor? 
for ten the kind of years that it takes to have uh, to run these fights. Um, starting with Kay. Hi. <laughs> um, okay, sorry. I was trying to make sure everyone could see. Um, I'm Kay. I use they them pronouns. I'm currently based in New York. I'm a social worker and an organizer. Um, and most of my work revolves around political education, but also on the ground strategy um, to close prisons and also support and free criminalized survivors of domestic and gender and sexual violence. Um, I've been organizing for over six years, but I came to abolition in a way that was similar to other people. I unfortunately became a survivor of sexual harm and um, I started learning more about different ways that communities were responding to harm without incorporating the police. Um, I also just wanna say that I'm really grateful to be virtually since we all live across the country from each other and I haven't gotten the chance to organize with all of you personally. Um, I think something that's really meaningful about Aid to Abolition that people have been telling us is that the work that we created has allowed them to have more confidence to plug into local campaigns that are happening around their city or their towns. Um, people now have talking points for conversations with parents or electeds or loved ones, and I think that's really beautiful. And then I think another thing is because we tend to hang out with people who are similar to us, I, it's easy for me to be like, oh, everyone believes in abolition or everyone's abolitionist. But I think the popularity of H abolition really showed, it was like a wake up call in the sense that it reminded me that no, most people aren't abolitionists and we are winning, like Rachel said, and our movement is growing, but there are some common questions that people are having right now. Um, I think that another great thing about our collective group is that we all have like varying levels of experience and we all are doing different work in our different cities. And some of us have different ways that we contribute to the movement. Like some people are designers or writers or just organizers. Um, so I think that's really great. Um, and then also there are a lot of unanswered questions in AIDS abolition and we kept that really broad. And I think that something that is coming up right now is getting a lot of questions like, oh, is this in line with abolition? Is this not abolition? Um, and I think that there are some things that are clearly not in line with abolition, like doing anything that expands the prison industrial complex or like jailing people or building new or smaller humane jails. That's not in line with abolition. But there are other things that are messier when it comes to how we're dealing with each other and how we're building community with each other that I think can't be answered necessarily on aid to abolition or even by me or members of the group. And that's because these questions are answered through doing. So through building community with each other and talking with each other and handling conflict with each other, unfortunately, we're going to make some mistakes, but I really would encourage people to start thinking about the other like sides of abolition besides the strategy to close jails. We also have to think about what it means to treat the people that we interact with daily with care. Um, and I think that's something that we really need to keep in mind if we're trying to find a political home. And also, I think one of the greatest things that I've learned from abolition is just having a broader sense of community and also a broader understanding of what care actually means. Um, when we first started this, we were on a call and Micah was actually like, basically like, as abolitionists, like we know the importance of a good apology. And I've been thinking about that ever since, just that there's certain things that we need to learn how to do if we're going to create a world without prisons or police. So these are just some of the things that I'm thinking about in this moment. I've 
so excited for all that is to come. And I'm really grateful that I was included on this project. Um, but yeah, thank you. K-Hive is here and uh, we love to see it. Um, Layla is gonna be talking next and I'm just, I'm just gonna pass it to her. Um, I'm so excited to be here. It was so heartwarming to hear I'm Layla Raven. I also use she, her pronouns. Um, and I'm a queer mom and organizer with Decrim New York, which is a collective of current and former trans and queer um, sex workers and trafficking survivors working to decriminalize sex work in New York City and state. And I'm also with Hacking Hustling, which is a sex worker collective working to interrupt um, state surveillance and violence facilitated by technology. Um, and I'm also the former executive director of DC-based grassroots organization, Collective Action for Safe Spaces, which is a Black, trans, and queer-led um, group working to build community-based solutions to address gendered violence. And yeah. shout out to Jakendria and Nona and all the folks um, back in DC still doing the work on the ground at CAS. Um, I'm gonna be talking a lot about the work that we were doing there and that they're still doing. Um, but first I wanted to share just, yeah, I came to abolition both because of personal experiences and because I've been touched by the advocacy, writing, and art of the many Black feminist theorists, organizers, and writers that have been doing this work for decades. Um, and just to echo what Rachel said earlier, I think it's so important for us to move back and forth between theory and practice so we can keep refining our theories and, and refine our practice. Um, and this will be an ongoing journey. And I think I'm always learning and I hope I always will be. Um, so I've personally experienced harmful interference by the state throughout my entire life um, through the foster system when I was a teenager. And then after experiencing abuse in the foster system, um, I ended up on the street, traded sex to access housing and got picked up by the police multiple times and labeled as a chronic runaway. Um, and then in my early 20s, I had an experience where I was arrested um, when defending myself against abuse um, by an intimate partner. And through all of these experiences, I thought it was just me. Um, I didn't see my experiences reflected in mainstream movements to address gendered violence or state violence until much later on when I came across the work of survived and punished and the art of um, Micah Bazant. And I learned through that work about the stories of Marissa Alexander, um, who I'm sure many of you are familiar with, who fired a warning shot just to um, try to keep herself safe from an abusive partner. And she was the one who was incarcerated in Florida, um, but she is now free. And then also Cece McDonald, Risha Meadows, Santoya Brown, Crystal Kaiser, and people who are still incarcerated like Gigi Thomas, um, Alicia Walker, and here in New York, Tracy McCarter, who um, is being held at Rikers. She's a mom and a nurse. Um, and similarly to all of the others, um, was arrested for defending herself from uh, domestic violence. So, um, you know, for so many of us already, turning to the police wasn't a response to violence because um, policing was the source of violence. Um, and you know, that's how I came to understand that this was part of a larger pattern and that the state enacts and enables gendered violence against black women, women of color and trans people of color systematically. Um, but this work has been marginalized by larger, better funded and often white led nonprofits. 
um, which, you know, back then I really deferred to for my, um, for my analysis around, uh, gendered violence, because I assumed again, I'm just one person. Right. Um, and then I, I, you know, came across the data, specifically um, some of the data around child sex trafficking, for example. Um, you know, I knew about my experience as a teen who was trading sex to access housing, but I thought of child sex trafficking as this enormous problem that thankfully large organizations like Polaris and, you know, all of these others that reference um, slavery in their, uh, in their organization's names that they had the answers, um, only to find from the data that the vast majority of experiences um, were of people whose experiences were labeled as child sex, sex trafficking, they didn't have a trafficker or a third party exploiter. And actually, um, it was mostly youth who didn't have access to housing, who had been similarly to me, leaving abusive environments or had been rejected um, by their families over their trans or queer identities. Um, and so a lot of these organizations in the anti-violence movement were pushing criminalization when actually that was making the problem worse for so many of us. So at CAS, we understood that we needed to tackle the issue of safety from multiple angles. Um, and in addition to organizing survivors to create community-based um, policy changes, we were doing public art and trainings to help change the culture that enables and perpetuates gendered violence. So I worked on programs like the Safe Bar Collective to train restaurant workers, um, on how to recognize, respond, and intervene to um, address harassment and nightlife. Um, and also the Rethink Masculinity Program, which is a peer-led 12-week program where masculine-identifying people can learn to interrogate their harmful behaviors and um, learn to build healthier relationships. Um, so, and then also, um, you know, for, for those who are most severely impacted by gendered violence, we recognized that the real need was for resources. People were experiencing homelessness. People didn't have um, enough food. They, you know, people didn't have the things they needed. So um, something, oh, I'll pause so that our interpreters can switch and then um, maybe someone can flag for me when to start up again. No, the interpreters are set. We're not switching at this moment. Oh, okay. I just got a, <laughs> a comment. Okay, thank you. Um, so, uh, yeah, one, one of the things that we were working on at CAS was, um, like I said before, working to decriminalize sex work. So Nena, who you'll hear from later, and I and uh, several others helped us start the Decrim Now DC campaign to do public outreach um, and education and canvassing in um, D.C. neighborhoods to help people better understand the issues that were actually um, facing our communities um, and the fact that policing wasn't helpful and that we needed to decriminalize sex work. So we wanted to build public support. And also, um, like I said before, you know, we knew that what Black trans and cis sex workers needed most were resources. So, um, you know, CAS is a tiny grassroots org. I think back then our budget was like $75,000. But what we were able to do was provide stipends to folks so that um, sex workers, especially with the shutdown of Backpage and um, other websites that sex workers use to um, 
more safely work when those uh, sites were being shut down by large anti-trafficking organizations. Um, we were able to help sex workers um, bridge the gap in their income um, by, you know, providing stipends so that folks could canvas, so that folks could um, do lobbying and participate in those meetings and um, be on the front lines of that advocacy while also having their needs met, giving money directly to sex workers, to Black trans sex workers specifically, I think was such an important part of the work. And that's um, work that we've also continued here in New York. So in, at Decrim New York, we were doing canvases, um, again, providing stipends to sex workers to, um, to do public education and lobbying. Um, and then when we shifted that work, when this pandemic started, um, to partner with BYP 100 and Baji on the Black Mutual Aid Initiative, um, it was a lot of kind of the same, the same work and the work that I think, um, you know, for black and brown, trans and queer, sex working and housing insecure um, and disabled communities, like mutual aid was nothing new. Um, we've always known, like we can't rely on the state to meet our needs. Um, and so um, we were able to shift our effort towards just, again, giving money and meeting the, the real needs of um, black communities in New York City. Um, and, you know, the last thing I, I want to say is just that um, abolition is more than dismantling the prison industrial complex by like repealing these laws that criminalize their survival and by abolishing prisons or policing, although all of those things are incredibly important. Um, but it's also about, um, you know, as Angela Davis and Ruth Wilson Gilmore and so many others can say more, um, uh, more profoundly than I can, but it's about uh, envisioning new forms of justice. It's about um, moving... Sorry, I got a notice. Switch. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm having like technical difficulties right now. <laughs> oh, Lily, you're good. You can keep going. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, so um, the criminal legal system teaches us to ask the question, like who's to blame, who will be punished, and an abolition abolitionist vision of justice calls on us to ask what's needed to make things right. How do we change the conditions that allowed harm to happen in the first place? What will make us safer? Um, and we can start doing that with our own behaviors in our everyday lives. Um, by better caring for each other, by taking accountability when we cause harm, which is inevitable, by giving good apologies, um, and by intervening and interrupting racism, sexism, anti-blackness, ableism, cis-sexism, and all forms of oppression when we come across those behaviors manifesting in our own communities. Um, and, uh, and even in our movement spaces, organizers are continuing to experience gendered violence from our own comrades, the people who are supposed to be in the struggle alongside us. Um, and I think that for many of us, the murder of and violence against Toy and Salau hit very close to home. Um, and it's important for all of us to remember that our movements against state violence must be movements against gendered violence. Um, and when we take action to address gendered violence in our movement spaces, we're building in our microcosm the world that we want to live in. Um, and so I've been really inspired by the many experiments in transformative justice and community-based accountability that are being used to center the needs and the safety of survivors while building a context where we can all be safe. Um, so all to say, 
abolitionist work um, can happen wherever you are, in your community, um, in your movement spaces, in your family. Um, that work is everywhere. Yeah. Um... I'm going to jump in. I know, surprise, I'm not just moderating. And they are harassing us with these fireworks. Um, but I, I guess I kind of want to lean into some of the openings that uh, Rachel Herzing presented us with around like rigor and also around like what it looks like to build legacies, um, reflecting on some of the lessons of last year's campaign to stop um, the vote, the city council's vote on the jails, jails construction in New York and how that built on a, a, a longstanding campaign to close Rikers, which is the penal colony in New York City. And before that, um, the movements to have justice for Eric Garner and Akai Gurley. Um, I think what I've learned, I guess, in that last year, and this is something another organizer said to me, is that even conflict is iterative. Like all of this work is very iterative um, because like, even, you know, it's amazing tomorrow we might shut down one precinct, but or one um, jail, but there's still going to be a lot of work to do. And if, you know, Layla, I think references too. like there's just been so much work that's been done by people in these spaces. So I think some something that I'm reflecting on in terms of inviting people into work on the ground is like that it is iterative. And sometimes I think uh, people who are doing this sometimes get really frustrated at having to re-explain things that after, you know, not that any of us, I think, consider ourselves experts, but just like, I think there is like this general frustration that people feel where they're like, I've, ex I, you know, I've talked, I've understood abolitions for four years and I've been working on this and now I don't want to explain it again. But I think in terms of when we were working with No New Jills, every time we were having like these general meetings every time, like we had to explain exactly what the mayor was saying, how to interpret the lies, like exactly what was going on. This incredibly um, bureaucratic and opaque process that the city had set up through community board that was only a land use process. It wasn't even real democracy or any kind of like governance, governance system um, to decide this major thing around building four jails for more than $8 billion. Um, so I think, one of the things I learned last year is that people are always going to need the tools. Like they're always going to need the resources. One of the best things you can do as a collective or as a community, as like a organization is like produce those zines, those toolkits, whether it's for like people who are incarcerated inside or for um, people who are just learning how to get involved outside is like, we, we were just producing so much political, political. I, and I know Rachel, you'll speak to this, but political ed material, um, and that, so that was one big lesson. Another, I think, big lesson is that uh, that there are always going to be different people joining at different stages of the of the campaign or the fight. Um, not everything looks like a campaign, but in terms of like what it means to have rigor and like maintain your place in some of these movements, you know, a lot of people might have read a uh, abolition and be like, I really want to completely get rid of police, and like that is going to take. We want it to take a year. It's probably going to take many years. And it's iterative. Like, I think there are many, many people who are going to join you and be part of that. There's also many people who are going to leave. And something I've been reflecting on is like how we actually leave spaces so that we can figure out whether we're learning everything we want to learn um, and doing everything we want to do. Um, the other kind of like lesson that I want to bring up here 
and that's maybe more in this year around like, what does it take to actually do something? And I had this interaction with someone a week ago. Uh, we had a rally at the tombs, which is the metropolitan detention complex in New York city. Um, we told our comrades that we love them who were locked up inside. We um, rallied and we really tried to make the point that defunding, even though New York city is hardcore, like saying defund the police, we don't like the police that, we also don't like these jails. We don't like these prisons. We don't want $400 million going towards uh, the new jails in this budget and not $8 billion over the next few years. Um, and at that rally, someone came up to me and was like, do you do this every week? And I was like, well, we don't do this every week. But, you know, there was this thing called People's Monday that used to happen in New York every uh, every Monday they would get, get together and say the name of someone who had been killed by police um, and really honor them. And I was like, you know, that happened and we might not be here at the tombs every week, but you should definitely feel empowered to bring your friends here every week and tell uh, the people inside that you love them and then and show them some love. Um, and I think that the person I was talking to was just so confused for a while because they were like, what do you mean I can come and do it? But I think that kind of like that empowerment for people to take initiative as long as they're doing the learning and um, relationship building that goes with it is is something that I'm kind of like reflecting on in relation to this conversation. Um, yeah. You are. <laughs> hey, y'all. Um, my name is Nena. Um, I use any pronouns um, and I'm an organizer um, based in D.C., I organized with an organization called Black Project 100, also known as BYB 100, which is a collective of Black organizers ages 18 to 35 committed to the social, political, and economic freedom of all oppressed people, specifically Black people. Um, BYP 100 is an abolitionist organization and has really been shifting the landscape around abolition of the prison industrial complex for six years, recognizing the direct relationship between gendered violence, intracommunal, right, amongst our communities, um, and also state violence. Um, I recognize abolition as a political project that dates back to um, slavery, right? We understand that, aboli that abolition um, means that the complete destruction of the United States, um, white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, imperialism, and all of these different isms that rely on the oppression of Black people, um, this country would not exist without um, the labor and the violence of Black people, the consistent violence of Black people, as some Afro-pessimists will say, um, necessitates whiteness. Um, and, you know, we recognize that slavery has not ended. It has only transformed into the prison industrial complex and the prison industrial complex touches every part of our lives. Um, I think my interactions with the police start at a very young age um, and it show up in our communities, the ways that we police each other, the way we police identities, the way we police uh, people who need support. Um, and abolition is a science um, and a practice that requires multiple strategies. And as an organizer, I'm oftentimes thinking about what is the systems that we're up against? Um, what are the things that I personally have control over? And what are the people that I can build with in order to combat the violence that we're experiencing? Um, you know, there, ha as uh, Rachel said, the defund MPD or defund the police is a really bold demand. It, it's not 
it's not the whole pie of abolition, right? I'm saying abolition is multiple strategies, multiple tactics, but it is due to the 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 years and decades of organizing that in the midst of an uprising, we can have a very straightforward demand um, that exposes people to the fact that in DC there is growing homelessness. Um, in DC, there are streets where there is a new tent every day, while our city um, is increasing our policing budget every day. Where our mayor, who's a black woman, um, painted a sign that says Black Lives Matter um, when our police department is beating and brutalizing and sexually abusing um, people in the city. And so this defund MPD and defund the police was really a call to recognize the contradictions that we're living in, right? I think abolition can be very complex to really grapple with the state, to really grapple with how violent of a country we live in, how much violence our country perpetuates. There's not a TV show that you watch. There's not a movie that you watch where violence is not the norm. I work with a lot of young people and talk to a lot of young people. And it's like so much of the ways we respond to everything is through violence. And that is really the goal of this state. And so abolition is not just about, as Ruth Gilmore says, not just about the absence of the state, but also the presence. Um, I want to highlight uh, uh, some of the things that I've been working on in D.C. Um, last night, I, along with other organizers, went to a local D.C. council member's house, Charles Allen. Um, he's the chair of our local uh, judiciary committee. So he has the power to decide budgets around policing, around criminalization. And we spent an hour outside of his house uh, making some noise because we believe that if they can't sleep, if we can't sleep, that they can't sleep. And we drove over 20,000 people to testify. <laughs> we drove thousands and thousands of calls to these council members, um, not because we believe that the state can't, will just relinquish power, but recognizing that we have an opportunity right now to invite people into the project of abolition. We have an opportunity right now to politicize people uh, and have people sit in the contradictions of why is it that the majority of people who are incarcerated, um, who are black women and girls are survivors of violence, right? Why is it that we respond to uh, children experiencing homelessness with incarceration? Why is there no place for, some, for a young person who's experiencing abuse or harm in their homes or experiencing poverty? Um, why is there no place for them to be housed, right? Why is it that um, during the uh, this global pandemic that our cities and our governments um, can't provide drive-through testing? <laughs> Why is it so hard for us to respond, right? We, we're recognizing, and many young people and many people across the world are recognizing the contradictions of capitalism and the fact that capitalism cannot meet the needs of our communities. Um, and so the things that I'm working on in D.C. is defunding the MPD. Again, we know that the government is not just going to relinquish power, so we will be doing that by any means necessary, while also recognizing that in order for us to have an, a vision of abolition, we also need to create the containers in our communities to deal with harm, right? We need to be trained on conflict mediation. We need to be able to provide safe housing for survivors. Um, we need to be able to farm and grow things in our communities. Um, we need uh, 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 to uh, uh, learn how to de-escalate things. Uh, another thing that I'm um, working on in D.C. is decriminalizing sex work. Um, why are we working to decriminalizing decriminalize sex work, which is essentially the removal, like sex work is illegal. Prostitution is illegal all around the country and mostly around the world. Um, and recognizing that, thank you, 
slow down. That was like six minutes ago. <laughs> Recognizing that um, sex work, the criminalization of sex work is one of the primary ways that black women and girls are incarcerated. It's one of the primary ways that black women and girls experience state violence. Oftentimes when we think about police violence, we're only thinking about when police murder people, which is something they do every day. Um, but we're not thinking about the, rat, the, 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 the deep sexual violence that people experience. And so recognizing that, uh, again, uh, the criminalization of sex work is a gendered issue. It's a queer issue. It's a trans issue. It's a disability justice issue. Um, and wanting to not just remove criminal penalties through the law and reduce interactions between police and our communities, um, but also to educate people, right? To actually talk to people in black communities around sex, talk to black communities around gender-based violence. Um, one last thing, I think I'm running out of time, but one last thing that I'm also, um, we're working on in DC is to stop the construction of a new jail. Um, in DC, they're trying to build a new jail that um, has been quoted from 300 to $500 million. Sometimes it's $700 million. Um, but want to highlight that DC has the highest incarceration rate in the world. 89% um, of the people who are incarcerated in DC are black. And so again, like slavery is not over. It has only been transformed into our prison industrial complex. And so my commitment is to one, intervene in gender-based violence and violence in my communities and in my friend groups and in my families, um, while also uh, creating and facilitating uh, uh, places for people to unlearn violence, to learn new ways of being, and to learn how to prepare ourselves for this longer project of abolition. And um, I'm so honored to be on this call with uh, so many great people doing great work. I really want to urge people to join an organization. And if there's not an organization that you rock with or you don't like, I know people have critiques about, you know, BYP 100, create your own. Get together with a group of three people, read some things and figure out what your shared values are and analyze what are the problems in your communities and what are the ways you can engage people to solve those issues. And that's really at the heart of what we're doing is, is, the, is the new world building. Um, so thank you. Cool. So I have been asked to um, talk about abolition in practice in our movements. And I feel like you just heard a whole bunch of really good examples of how that's playing out. So I'm going to try to keep it pretty brief here. One of the things that um, I heard in all of the previous speakers' comments is something that um, really resonates with me, which is that abolition is an invitation, right? It's an invitation to think about how we want to live with each other. It's an invitation to think about how we want to be in relationship to the natural world, how we want to be in relationship to property, how we want to be in relationship to institutions. And I think if we imagine um, it as an opening, as an invitation, then we can make different kinds of alliances in our movements than if we imagine it as some, um, you know, kind of high pedestal that you have to be special to climb up on. There's space, I think, for lots and lots and lots of us in this. And along those lines, I think, you know, we can't go it alone. We are of necessity going to have to work with people whose politics don't always line up with ours. And I think that there's sometimes um, 
a move from particularly people who are new to a set of politics to be like, now I got it figured out and you don't have it figured out. You go over there and you do you. But I think, you know, to the point that Lon was making earlier, we have to repeat ourselves. We have to reiterate what our points are. And that's not a bad thing. I actually think repetition can be a really, really important tool. It helps us to make continual space for people who maybe weren't there the first time, but it also helps us to sharpen our own articulations. What do we mean? What do we think? What are we trying to say? What are we trying to do? And it helps us if we have to repeat that over and over and over, and it it can be annoying. And I, I also want to acknowledge that sometimes people are willfully ignorant or willfully like trying to provoke you by acting as if they don't know. But I think for the most part, that's kind of an earnest curiosity. And I think that that helps us. Similarly with that, I think that, you know, we can't say, oh, that's reformist. Screw you. Right. That's just that's not a helpful stance, I don't think, if we actually want to win. I think I guess two things about that. One is that um, we're going to have to work with reformers um, on some of the things that we want to work on. So if, for instance, you want to close a jail, chances are good there are some reformers in that fight. And I know that y'all in New York have been negotiating some of these politics. But it doesn't mean that you pick up and you go home because they're there. It also doesn't mean that you shame and abuse them because they don't agree with you. Part of, I think, our job as organizers, but part of our job as abolitionist organizers in particular, is to make abolition irresistible. And I cannot say that enough because I think that it is true. We need people to want to be in our in our sphere. We want people to want to work with us to make the world that we all know we want and we need. Um, And we can't do that by being superior. We can't do that by saying we won't work with people. We need everybody. And it's our job as organizers to make a convincing case for why our position is is the irresistible case or is common sense. Um, I think, you know, one other thing that um, I'll mention about how abolition can show up in movements is just a note to um, to organizers, which is, you know, we don't have to be perfect. I think sometimes there's this sense that if you believe in prison industrial complex abolition and you articulate that or you organize around that, that somehow you have to be this totally perfect human being who never causes any harm anywhere in the world, who is, you know, just willing to accept anything that happens. I am always someone who says, I don't believe in punishment, but I do believe in consequences. So it's not that I don't think that there are things that happen when we harm each other. It's not that I don't think that there are responses we can take. Um, And I, I don't want us also to get into a place where we feel that we are being pressured to not live in the real world, that we're being pressured to live in some kind of utopia. We want to create a better world. And as we're getting there, there'll be some bumps. There are things that we have to learn. There are mistakes we'll make. Um, And another thing that I say repeatedly, because I think it's true, is that we have to have space that we demand from our allies and from the state to try things out and to fail and to try them again and to improve them. 
but we also have to have the generosity and the grace with each other to create space to fail and to do better the next time. Because as I can't remember, I think it was Mon was saying this, this is an iterative process, right? We learn by doing, and hopefully we get better each time we, we um, have a go at it. Yeah. Um, and actually, because you highlight some of the fights in New York, I just want to I want to shout out um, Free Them All for Public Health, which is currently working to uh, have people released from Rikers uh, and Free Them All will close Rikers. <laughs> um, and also um, the work that people are still doing to fight the jails uh, that are still being constructed with six billion allocated over the next five years. And there will always be reformists and I think we'll always have to find them, but um, people are still closing jails across the country. Like they're doing it more than they were doing it before. So they're doing something right. Um, so Eli and Derek are joining us for the for kind of a short Q&A period. Rachel's gonna stay, I'm gonna stay. Um, and there were a, a lot of questions that people dropped in the chat. We're not going to get to all of them, but we will address some of the really meaty ones. Um, and Elan Derica, when you talk, just maybe introduce yourself since people haven't met you yet. Um, but actually, go ahead and introduce yourself, and then we'll get into questions. <laughs> Eli first. Hey, my name is Eli. My pronouns are E, they. Um, I'm originally from New York. I'm an organizer with Black Trans Media out of Brooklyn, New York. I am the communications director with TGIJP, which is the Transgender, Gender Variant, Intersex Justice Project out of California. That's my introduction. Derica. Okay, sorry. Hi, my name is Derica. I, my day job, I am technically the deputy director of the Spirit of Justice Center at Union Theological Seminary. I'm a human rights lawyer. I'm a writer. I'm a mama. I'm hot. I'm excited about making abolition irresistible. It's just, yeah, I'm just so grateful to be here and to be doing Q&A. So right. do we just hop in? Yeah, and I will I will field the questions for you. So, um, and maybe I'll I'll help answer some. But uh, Eli and uh, Derica are incredible geniuses, and that's why they're here for this part. No, no pressure. Um, so, oh, I have tons of questions. Do you not by text? Great. Yeah, that Haymarket fielded me from text. Do you still want to field them, or do you want to go through the list? I, I'll I'll. Pick some of them. Um, so there's all, a few questions that are already here around like, and I think this is one we get a lot. Um, you know, okay, fine, we've got hit abolition, but um, what do we do with the toxic cops? What do we do with the police that are bad who have murdered? Um, do we not hold them? You know, the question is, how do we reconcile the seemingly contradictory call to abolish police and to hold the police officers responsible for murdering? Black folks accountable. I'll go ahead and um, start with that one. So one, that call isn't contradictory. Just want to call that like the call for police to be held accountable does not mean that 
the accountability is going to work within the prison industrial complex, right? As um, we've heard from abolitionists that come before us, it, the prison jails is a catch-all, right? And by putting police in prison, that's not fixing the problem. You're just continuing the problem. So I am a learning abolitionist and I never position myself like I know everything. So what do we do with police? Let's work, let's strategize. What do we do with them? They don't go in prison, but we need to figure out they shouldn't have that position of power, right? Because they abuse that position of power. They shouldn't be on paid vacation. I could tell you what we shouldn't be doing with them. And then that can work us towards what we need to do with them. And that's how I'll go ahead and answer that question. So, yeah, I think um, Nana said something that I really appreciate and is what I try to, uh, I just want to echo it a little bit. So I think the most important thing that we can do is figure out how to be plugged into organizations and in our, in our communities to, to figure out an answer to that question and not wait until someone dies and then puts that question on Twitter. Cause then it's like, damn, I got to figure out what to do with cops in 140 characters. Like that's like, that is not like the abolitionist um, move, right? Well, I think what we're hoping for is what Rachel has and you know, emphasized as well. It's up to us to think about that. So right now there is a range of how we can respond to that. So some people I saw earlier today are saying, okay, we can call to indict, convict, and send that killer cop to jail, or we can call to defund the police department that was responsible for killing Breonna Taylor. So um, Michelle Alexander has this, um, this statement where she says, people are afraid to let go of prisons because their options feel like nothing or something. Sorry, this this never happens. This sorry, this is so loud in my background. Um, people feel like their options are nothing or something, and it's our responsibility to make sure that there's all these other areas in. Be- this is all we have to abolish police right now. You see, they don't want us to be free. You see, they trolling me on the, on the YouTube channel right now, trolling. And so there are other options, and it's up to us to imagine and dream of other options. I usually also get that question. In a post-abolition world, what do we do with killer cops? Well, in a post-abolition world, there are no killer cops because we don't have cops, right? So if we believe that police officers are primarily tasked with managing inequality, right? It's like, well, putting cops in jail does not undermine inequality. It just puts that individual police officer or cop in a jail. It does not remove the reasons why they come into contact with people in the first place. So abolitionist people are, you know, are dreaming and thinking about how do we reduce that contact, reduce that initial interaction so we aren't waiting and defaulting. And I know we want justice. I know we want justice. And we've been conditioned, you know, my mama still watch Law and Order and get on my nerve. But we've come we've conflated this idea of justice and a conviction. And we have to decouple that. We have to decouple that. And so I think that starts with unlearning um, what's possible, thinking and creating other options, not looking for four people on a YouTube channel to tell you what they are, but join us, you know, come into a conversation where we can think about that together. I just wanted to um, piggyback off of some things you said there. One thing that came to mind is the individualism about that whole question. You're asking what we do with that one individual person to solve the problem for the whole system. So that's where we all have to challenge ourselves. 
to not think about it as individual acts because what we're trying to abolish is the entire system. So um, one of the other questions, and I actually think that I want to direct this to Rachel first and then everybody else can chime in is, um, Considering how policing and prisons developed through stages uh, over centuries and abolitionist movements have existed throughout those centuries, will the full abolition of police and prison develop the same way over multiple stages? Good God. If I could predict that, I would be doing some really different shit than I'm doing right now. But um, um I will take that as an earnest question and try to answer it in a more earnest way, which is um, I, I don't know what it's going to take. I, and I think that's because the systems have been built up over such a long period of time, but also because they resist being torn down. And I, I want to raise this because I feel like there's a a backlash coming. That I mean, we've already started to see backlash. We saw a backlash from junk. But, you know, there was this um, Onion article. I don't know if y'all saw that yesterday. It's like, you know, cops get dismantled and cops go on killing spree. It was essentially the story. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what's going to happen, right? So it was like, we really need to think seriously about how the state responds to pressure um, directed toward it and also the cover that it gives non-state actors. To, to mess with us and to try to maintain the status quo. So we're up against those things. And I don't say that to be pessimistic. I also don't say that to scare anybody, but I do say that to say, you know, it's not kind of just like this thing got built up and then it'll take those same, you know, incremental steps in that way to tear it down, but to say we're in a fight. So what determines how things will unravel to my mind is how good we are at fighting, how effective our fight is. And I know some people get hung up on ideas about fighting or ideas about winning, but I do not. I want to win and I'm down for the fight. So I feel like, you know, if if we are a more powerful set of forces, that will accelerate our ability to eliminate the use of imprisonment, policing, surveillance, criminal sentencing, right? If we're not, then it's going to take a lot longer. I don't think people are going to give up. We've seen it kind of, you know, going on and on, as I was describing earlier. So I don't think it's that people will just give up. But I do think that the pace at which it happens and the way that it happens is determined by how we fight and how powerful we are in that fight. Does anyone have anything to add? Yeah, um... This is Nena again, any pronouns. I think uh, to Rachel's point, it's like if we watch the construction of a new jail (laughs) and not do anything about it, it's going to be really hard to fight against that, right? If we watch um, the police officers, more and more police officers getting hired, it's going to be a lot harder to fight that. If we watch uh, policing budgets increase, it's going to be a lot harder to fight that. And so while this project is really big and humongous, there are tangible things that we can do and, and say like, oh, where's the jail in my city? Where's the prison in my city? Where What is happening with the police? And how can I, at every step of the way, resist? And I think more and more people need to be resisting 
But like, we don't have the answers because if we did, then the state would be gone. <laughs> but this is like a long-term project. But we know when more and more people join in, as 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 Mon said earlier, there have been closing of jails, right? There has been, in some cities, there's been a closing of jails or a reforming of a jail. And in some cities, there's been no jail because people had an abolitionist politic to say that we're not going to fall for the same mechanisms that the state uses um, to continue their harm, right? There are people in during the crime bill of the night, you know, in the 1990s who fought against that, but there was still a, a widespread acceptance that policing is a norm. There was still a widespread uh, perception um, and belief that prisons and jails is the norm. And so I think um, yes, it is a fight and it is a battle and we need more and more people to question the legitimacy of the United States and question the legitimacy of the prison industrial complex. Um, so, yes, I, I do believe that we will win. Um, and I don't know if I'm going to see it, but I hope I see it. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, I'm here. I'm here for the experimentation. Um, I have um, a couple of things to contribute. Shout out to Close the Workhouse in St. Louis. I just saw that scroll um, in Action St. Louis. But uh, I want to think about um, this conversation and much of what I've learned from you, Rachel, of abolition not being reducible to like the prison industrial complex, right? Like not just about cages and cops, but also about the abolition of a society that thinks it needs cages and cops to solve harm. I saw someone in the question say, you know, I don't think gun reform is about abolition, right? It's about, it's as if um, abolition, there's like cops and and prisons over here, and then there's like gun reform over here. Um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore says that abolition should be red, black, and green. It should be red, which means it must be anti-capitalist. It must be black. It means for black liberation, for the liberation of oppressed people and internationalists. And it must be green, which means that our planet, how in the hell are we going to live violence, jails, and prisons if we only have a planet to stay on? Where are we going to go? We're not going to have cops. We're not going to have cages. And we're not going to have earth. So it has to be as expansive as possible. It's reducing the reasons why people need those institutions to solve harm. And so when people ask, you know, what do we do about like the violent people, I mean, just the really bad people, we have to understand that violence and people who um, commit harm are not isolated individuals, as Eli mentioned, as as Angela Davis said in the conversation with the Dream Defenders a couple of weeks ago, they're created in a context. So if you live in a neighborhood that doesn't have a lot of trees, it could impact how violent you are, which is fascinating. And if you live in DC where I used to live, there was a 10 degree difference in temperature between Northwest DC and Southeast DC. And so maybe one answer to reducing violence is to plant more trees. That's abolitionist, right? So there's so many ways we can think about it, which is so exciting because there's so many ways for people to plug in. It's not simply if you say, you know what? There's a lot of opportunities to like shut down jails. There's also a lot of opportunities to plant trees. I'm interested in planting trees. You can figure out how to do that through an abolitionist framework. So there's so many ways you can put your hand on this cloud. We just need you to come do the work. Um, I think we might be out of time for more questions, but the general gist of one of the other questions, and I think it really connects to what Derek just said, is is like, how do you meet other abolitionists? How do you make friends? And I will, I feel like, I think Derek really got at it. There was another question that was like, um, what do I do if I live somewhere rural and um, all the work is happening in the cities? And 
I think that's kind of what we were trying to get in in the first conversation, which is like organize where you're at. Sometimes that does look lonely, but you're not really alone. There's tons of people organizing everywhere. The other thing is once you start, I mean, there's always also the tactic of like, you know, taking the friends you already have and then just like slowly bringing them over to your side. So that's, that's one option. And then, um, in rural areas, people, like people will run small campaigns and then attract more. And that's how we build power. So I actually, I, I think that I'm happy to end on that note. Um, hey, Mike, and can I say something about the rural yeah. stuff? I just, I, I, sorry go for to it. jump in. I just can't let this go. Some of the most badass abolitionist organizers that I know right now are in rural places. So if you want to know how to stop a federal prison, not some rinky-dink jail, if you want to know how to stop a federal prison, not that jails are rinky-dink, they're all very important fights, but like you want to look to Appalachia and you want to look to some people who have for years and years and years been fighting against the the um, construction of federal prisons in that region uh, and um, state prisons in that region, right? And so, and they're doing that at the same time that they're fighting the kind of grotesque extractive um, policies around coal mining and lumber mining and fracking, right? All of that happening, you know, to Derricka's point that our, our, um, our fights, as Ruthie says, have to be red and black and green, right? So I don't want you know, that's the same in upstate New York. That's the same in rural places here. You know, shout out to California Prison Moratorium Project, for instance. Shout out to Milk Not Jails, for instance, in New York, right? So people are organizing everywhere. And I think, you know, because so many of the issues around policing and where people um, who are imprisoned are sent from, there's a misidentification that these are urban issues. But the truth is there are people who are doing really extremely good organizing all across the country. Nana. Yeah, I just wanted to say one last thing, like abolition, like they say, the revolution, <laughs> you know, I want to say something too, uh, starts at home, right? And so, you know, over the years, I think for me, it's been difficult because I feel like I'm moving every year to a new place, but trying to make more of an effort to be like, who are my neighbors, right? How can we create safety nets within the people that live around us? That too is like abolitionist work, right? Like, is there some like childcare sharing that is going on? Is there people who are being harmed in your building? Like just like these really everyday practical things that we oftentimes overlook and people really want the big and the sexy and the complex things. And it's like, okay, if you see somebody on your block, how do you engage them? How do you talk to them? Do you have those communication skills? If not, how can you create those con communication skills when you have interpersonal conflict with your friends or your family or loved ones or whoever? How do you deal with that conflict? How do you talk to people? How do you treat people? And I, re I really think that we need to start there because it's so easy to like other ourselves from like violent people or people who are incarcerated or people who are all the other, you know, the othering, which is what the state does, right? It's based on othering, but we don't oftentimes take time to like self-reflect on like what is our personal commitment to like personal transformation around the relationship that we are we have. Um, so wanted to offer that there there's something about starting with yourself and the people around you and not looking and going out for the big sexy things that are really not big and sexy, you know, because those are the you have to build small to like build the capacity for the big things. Yeah. 
I know, I know we're, we're on the end of time. Oh, I'm sorry, Raina. I know we're on the end of time, so I just wanted to get this out real quick, real quick. My bad. And then I know I'm long-winded, but I'm going to keep it quick. I wrote my notes. So the one thing I wanted to say is I came here in this space, as it's called Aid to Abolition, it's a teaching. I came here to learn with, not teach anything. So that's one thing that I want to say to anybody who is, in, you know, they want to be abolitionists. They want to start learning. Step into the space to learn. You know, that's that's the first step. Um, I learned something in here, actually, the Pan-African colors. You said that, and it just started to hit me real hard. And I was like, yo, that piece that Audre Lorde wrote, I believe it was in 1985. We just recently read about it with the liberation through reading. Shout out to Comrade Erica. And the importance in abolition, what I learned through that was drawing the connection between the violence that African people are facing here on this land and the violence they're facing on our homeland. And that's an important part. I'm not going to go too deep into it, but let's talk about who's training our police, right? I'll stop there. Okay. So another thing that I wanted to say is, I think Nana, you touched on it. A whole bunch of people touched on it. I think Kay touched on it, but for me, my introduction to abolition was me being trans and recognizing that the abolition of the gender binary is abolition beyond the binary. Um, shout out to CC, shout out to Kai Peterson, he's about to get out. You know, shout out to comrade Alyssa, we need her to come home. So those are the things that I want to share with y'all. In your abolitionist framework, make sure it's beyond the binary, okay? Thank y'all so much. Okay, don't be mad at me. I do want to say one thing. I know, I know, I know. One more thing, one more thing, one more thing. <laughs> because this happens all the time, and it also makes me think about when you said um, Audre Lorde, I often see the quote, the Audre Lorde quote, quote come up in like the reform and abolitionist conversation. The one that's, you know, um, we can't disma- can dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. People don't, the next three sentences are also so important, right? Right, Audre Lorde also says that this may help us temporarily beat him at his own game, right? And then Audre Lorde says that that fact is only threatening to people whose sole source is the master's house. So if your sole source is the criminal legal system, if your sole source is the criminal justice system, if if your sole source of justice is the system that we currently have, you're going to be threatened by that fact, right? I just like, it's like, y'all, we gotta keep reading the rest of the paragraph. It gets even better. It gets even better. And what abolitionist does, it says, we need more sources. We just need more sources. And that's why I'm so drawn to the project, to the policies, and to the practice. So when you said, oh, gee, Lord, you know, I didn't want to get in trouble. It dropped in my spirit. I could, I just had to, just had to say that. Um, I do uh, want to move us, Raina. Did you want to offer something? I I know you were going to say something. I was going to say something, but honestly, everybody said everything that needs to be said, except I'll just end with the Ruthie Wilson Gilmore quote, because, you know, I you have to. Um, Ruthie Wilson Gilmore says that if we want to change things to make abolition, we have to change everything. So she says you have to change one thing and that is everything. And I feel like that's what everybody was touching on. Abolition is not just the prison industrial complex. 
And that's why it happens at home. It happens in rural areas. It happens in the cities. Um, check out me on Mingus and pod mapping and do that in your area. Okay, bye. Um, so I just want to uplift the campaigns that we're supporting through this event. And I also want to shout out, because we just talked about it, um, the Red Deal, where Indigenous people uplift abolition, the Adjust Transition Frameworks, where it talks about how we move towards abolition by tr moving towards caretaking. Those are two resources because people were asking for resources. And Queer Appalachia, which does a lot of harm reduction work in Appalachia through an abolitionist framework. But specifically, um, this event is uplifting uh, a few particular projects and campaigns. So Breakout in New Orleans, um, which supports uh, Black trans youth uh, in NOLA. Uh, I'm going to mess up this pronunciation, but the Instituto de Educación Popular de Sur de California, so uh, Institute of Popular Education in Southern California, survived and punished glitz um, and the formerly incarcerated small business rescue fund will all receive proceeds from this and we just you can find um, glitz and the formerly incarcerated small business rescue fund on our website and we're so happy you joined us we really hope this was helpful um, and we look forward to doing more thanks for listening if you liked this episode subscribe to our podcast and to the haymarket books youtube channel where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.